Welcome to the 26 West Church Sunday Gathering Podcast. Our prayer is that this teaching helps you experience life in Jesus. We are in a summer series out of the book of Colossians, and obviously today's text is chapter 1, verse 24, all the way through 2, verse 5. The chapter breaks in kind of an odd uh, spot. And, and the title, as is on the slide, Jesus, Lord of All. That is what the book is about. Now, Stephen did the last two weeks, so already we're on week three, and you might be in a little fuzzy about what happened the last couple of weeks. So we always, when we jump into the middle of the scriptures, we always want to review where we've been. And a big thing to remember, especially for today's text, is that Paul's writing from prison. He's suffering for the Lord in prison. And the church doesn't know Paul because he had never been there. It was planted by a guy named Epaphras, Epaphras or however you pronounce that, not Paul. So they don't know Paul. Paul doesn't know them. So today, I think a good thing for us to do is imagine this letter coming to us because Paul definitely hasn't met us and we definitely haven't met him. So imagine Paul writing this to us, their church. It's good to review what Paul has said so far. So in your Bibles, your app, go back to verse 15. This Stephen spoke on this last week, a really important part of the text. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the image of the invisible God. And he goes on to talk about these incredible truths of Jesus. And then down in verse 21, he talks to the Colossians. Even though he hadn't met him, he knows about him. He says, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. So Paul calls these folks evil Evil behavior, but now because of Jesus Christ, you've been reconciled. And then that part of the text just came alive. And here we are in verse 24, where Paul switches to, now I, Paul, rejoice in what I'm suffering. And that's where we're gonna start today. And I'm gonna tell you that today's text is challenging. When Stephen called me and said, are you free on July 16th to preach? And without asking him what the passage was, I go, yeah, I'm available. He goes, well, it's kind of a hard text, but you like those, right? Because Stephen knows me. I like the hard text because if you spend the time and find a golden nugget in a hard text, it usually sticks with you. And I'm so excited to share something I learned just this last month because I've had the benefit of time that you haven't to really spend some time in this text. So I'm excited to share a couple things. What we're going to do, though, is not go verse by verse because it is a challenging text. So we're going to do it a little bit different. In fact, we're going to skip down to verse 28. And I'm going to start in verse 28, because what Paul is saying in this text is that he labors for the church, and he wants to accomplish something. He wants everybody to be fully mature in Christ. Let me read the text to you. This one will be up on the slide. Not many of them will be. Chapter 1, verse 28. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, and here's the purpose statement, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. So we're gonna talk about maturity today. It's actually kind of the over, overarching thing that Paul is talking about. So we have to ask ourselves, honestly, are we mature in Christ? Do we even desire to be mature in Christ? Now, when I say that, your minds might go to yes, no, immature, or mature. It's not, this maturity is not a pass-fail. This is a, a progression. I said we're living with some little kids now. The youngest one is Benjamin. He just 
turned one in May. We've nicknamed him the Benjaminator, so you know what he's like. He's just a wonderful kid, but he's not mature yet, but he's appropriately mature for his age. And what I mean by that is not a day goes by where somebody doesn't say, Benjamin, take the rocks out of your mouth, because he's a rock eater. And, you know, when we're new in the faith, when I was new in the faith 40-some years ago, I was a rock eater. I was very, very new. I didn't know anything. I didn't know you can't eat rocks. Benjamin doesn't know you can't eat rocks, but he's hopefully going to learn because his older brother and sister, they don't eat rocks, so they've matured. So this is a progression, and we're going to talk today about what Christian maturity looks like. Now, I said this is a hard passage, so I want, I want to tell you up front, there's two things I want you to really, really take away from today. The first one is this, that we are participating in Christ's suffering. And that's verse 24, and that's complicated. We'll get there in just a second. And then the second thing I want you to take away from today is the mystery. Paul talks about the mystery, and he says it's Christ in us, our hope of glory. So those are the two big topics I'll talk about today, and then we'll make uh, some comments at the end where Paul applies that. So the first, first topic is this challenging verse. And when I started reading the commentaries on this, it was like, well, nobody really agrees or knows exactly what to make of this. And I'm going to read it. Now, verse 24, now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his church, which is the body. Remember, Paul's in prison for announcing Jesus is Lord of all, and that got him a prison sentence. And he says he's suffering for the Colossians. There's a purpose to this suffering. By the way, in Ephesians, he says, I'm, a, I'm suffering for the Ephesians. And Paul says, I'm glad. I rejoice. So is he a weirdo? Is he a nutcase? Or is some, in some way, is he just mature in Christ where he can say, I'm glad about this. And if we know your Bibles, you don't have to turn there, but you might remember some other points in the Bible where this is talked about. Matthew 5, Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, promises us that we're going to be persecuted. In fact, he says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because your reward in heaven is going to be great. So Jesus says we're going to be persecuted. And Jesus says, you're blessed. And your reward is going to be great. That's where Paul's getting this crazy idea of I rejoice in my suffering because he's actually mature in the gospel. We have to ask ourselves, do we live this out? And I'm, t- I'm talking to myself primarily here. Because when suffering hits me, the first thing I do is whine. I know none of you do that. But I usually whine. And then sometimes after a while, I start going, okay, there's, there's some good in this. What about Paul to the Philippians chapter 3? He says this, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. So in Paul's letter to the Philippians, he's talking about participating in his sufferings. But if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 8, 17. I want you to look at this first because as I prepared for today and studied this, this started to make sense to me when I read this and started to get an idea. What's this suffering about? Because it's different than I've thought about it for my whole life. So this is, this is new for me, and it's probably new for some of you. But Romans 8, verse 17 says this. 
Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, children of God's. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And check this out. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So what Paul is saying in his, in his letter to the Romans is, if we are to share in Christ's glory, we must share in his sufferings. You're not going to see that on a bumper sticker, by the way. We get, you're going to get that at church. You've got to come to church to get that, right? We are to share in his sufferings so we can share in his glory. Now, I have to pause and say, what's glory? Because that might be a new term for some of, some of you. And when the theologians talk about glory, what glory is is specifically a time in the future. Here's a definition from Larry Hart, who wrote a fantastic a theology book called Truth of Flame, and he says this, glory is the final stage of redemption when our sanctification is complete and we receive resurrection bodies. We live daily in this exhilarating hope, hope for that day. All of us at one point in time will die and at one point in time Jesus will come back and we're gonna get resurrected bodies. And we're going to live forever with Jesus physically in the new Jerusalem, which is on earth. That's glory. And we should be hopeful for that because it is going to be absolutely amazing. N.T. Wright, who you may like him, you may not. You know, lots of people have opinions about N.T. Wright. His books are a little bit too wordy for me, but every once in a while he has this quip. This is one. N.T. Wright says this. The vocation of the church is to suffer. That's also not a bumper sticker, right? What is he saying? He says, in our job as Christians, as disciples of Christ, is to suffer. So let's go back to this text, verse 24, and pick it apart. We have to do this. We have to always interpret the unclear with the clear, because we don't really know what Paul is saying about what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. I thought, I thought that was a completed work on the cross. And listen to this. This is really, really important. There's nothing lacking. Paul's talking about lacking of afflictions. There's nothing lacking in the redemptive power and value of the work on the cross. When Jesus finished the atonement on the cross, that work was complete. Jesus himself said, it is finished, it's done. Jesus has done all the suffering he's needed to suffer so that you and I could have our sins forgiven. That's an amazing thing. It is complete. Yet, there still seems, if we read Paul, that there's this ongoing suffering. So how do we understand still lacking in regards to, to Christ's afflictions? How do we understand that? Doug, Douglas Moo, who uh, Stephen's been quoting a fair bit in the last couple of weeks, says this about the still lacking. The tribulations that are inevitable and necessary as God's kingdom faces the dominion of darkness. So we live in a two-kingdom world. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of darkness. And because of the kingdom of darkness, there's going to be suffering. And here's the thing that I learned just this last month that is so profound. Jesus is suffering still continue. Not the work on the cross suffering, not the redemption of our souls, but Jesus suffers today. Now stick with me. Here's a quote from 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I don't read Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but Scott McKnight has a fantastic commentary on the book of Colossians, and he quotes Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and if you get Scott McKnight and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you're pretty good. So here's the quote, it's on the, on the slide. Even though Jesus Christ has already accomplished all the vicarious suffering necessary for our redemption, and there it is, he's saying the work of the cross is complete, that's done. Nevertheless, his sufferings in this world are not finished yet. And I read that and went, what? Jesus is still suffering? That's what he says. In his grace, he has left something unfinished in his suffering, which, ha- which his church community, that's us, is to complete in the last period before his second coming. So, brothers, sisters, I'm here to tell you that Jesus' suffering, it continues today. This is a deep, profound truth. And as mature believers, we should mature in this and participate in those sufferings. That's how the New Living Translation actually translates. Verse 24, Paul says, I am participating in the sufferings of Christ. He's not talking about the past sufferings. He's talking about the current sufferings. Okay, you might be saying... So what, Steve? What, what, what do you do with that? Here, here's what, I, what, what hit me with this this week. Most of my adult life, and by most, like 90%, when I relate to Jesus when I'm suffering or when I'm having a hard time or, you know, you have a challenge at work, challenge, all the tough stuff of life, of which there's a lot, mostly I viewed and thought of Jesus just being with me and saying, Steve, is going to be okay because Jesus promised, I'm with you, I will, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. That's most of my Christian life. I've lived like that relationship. Five years ago, when my bride Vicky got her first leukemia, I got to the point where I realized not only is Jesus with me, he also weeps with me. And it took me a long time to get there. But Jesus is so loving and so compassionate that when we are in a suffering time and we're weeping, he weeps with us. I hope that's comforting to you in some way. But here was, for me, this week, this eureka moment. Not only does Jesus weep with me, he suffers with me. And some of you are probably going, "Ah, I don't know if that's right. Let me give you two analogies that, hopefully just kind of convince you. If you have kids and you're their parents and they're suffering, do you suffer with them? As a loving parent, when your kids are suffering, don't you suffer a little bit? Yeah, why? Because you love them. And Jesus loves us more than we could ever understand or imagine. So if a loving parent could, could suffer while the kids suffer, Jesus can suffer while you suffer. And, and what about spouses? If you have a spouse that's suffering, like my wife is suffering, I suffer with her. Not as bad as her, but I'm suffering. So you know, whatever way you look at this, I think you could land on Jesus suffers today. The church is the body. When the body suffers, does the head of the body suffer? Yes. Now, at this point in time, this just changed last night, um, I have to give you an announcement, which is kind of sad. How many people know Tim Middleton? Show of hands. Quite a few. How many people have their cars fixed by Tim? <laughs> He's retired, by the way, but 
Uh, about a month ago, Tim came down uh, with acute myeloid leukemia. And it's the same exact cancer that Vicky has. And we, Tim and Debbie and me and Vicky, we've been lifelong friends. Uh, our kid, our daughter is the same age. We live next to each other for years. Um, and they're really quiet, private people. So they've been keeping this really quiet. But Vicky and I talked to Debbie last night, and she just said, we need as much prayer as we can get. Because Tim's not doing that well. He's in the hospital right now. He's been in the hospital for a couple weeks now. He's had all the chemo, and he's hurting. He's suffering. And it's not going super well. We don't know. We don't, can't tell the future with cancer. Uh, but there is a Caring Bridge site for him. Just go to Caring Bridge, type in Tim Middleton, and you can track with that. And I'm going to ask you, I'm going to beg you, if you're not already in communication with Tim and Debbie because you're in their, you know, their close circle of friends, don't start now. The last thing they need from me announcing this is to be barraged with text, emails, phone calls. Just don't. Be mature and do another thing, which I'm gonna announce right now. Tomorrow at five o'clock at St. V's Hospital in the main lobby, so not the East Pavilion or West Pavilion, but the center main lobby, Sherry Lazano is part of our church is organizing a prayer time from five to 5.30. It's announced on the Caring Bridge. So if you want to help Tim pray, if you wanna really, really help Tim, come to St. Vince's tomorrow at five and pray with a group of the church, and, and we'll pray, and we're gonna pray for healing, like I pray for healing every day for Vicky. But Tim, he's hurting, and he's a brother, and he's suffering, but the thing is, is as much as Tim is suffering, and as much as Debbie is really suffering, she's worried, she's scared, Jesus is suffering with them. Okay, how about doing a fun one? You wanna do a fun one? All right, verse 26 and 27, here we go. This is, this is really cool, I love these this passage. Verse 26, then the mystery, everybody likes a murder mystery, but this isn't a murder mystery. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Verse 26 talks about this mystery that has been hidden or kept secret but is now disclosed or revealed to God's people. Now, we, we need to know, if you haven't studied the Bible a lot, Paul uses this word mystery something like 20 times. It's here in Colossians, it's in Romans, it's in Ephesians, it's in 1 Corinthians, and I believe it's in 1 Timothy. So five of his books, he talks about the mystery multiple times. And don't think puzzle. Uh, don't think strange. Uh, don't think mysterious. This is what you should think when you hear mystery. This is what Paul means. The mystery is God's unfolding plan. The mystery is God's unfolding plan. What was unknown is now disclosed. God's unfolding this plan of salvation, this plan of redemption. It's not a secret timetable that we have to go decode like the Da Vinci Code or something like that. Ultimately, the mystery is Christ, Christ in us. That's the ultimate mystery. And verse 20 says, 27 says that as God's plan unfolds, he emphasized that it's not just for Jews because up until Jesus came around, most people basically thought the plan of God was just for the Jews. But if you read the Abrahamic Covenant, 
back in Genesis chapter 12, it's supposed to be for all nations, but that kind of got missed. But it was emphasized, and Paul was called to witness to the Gentiles, and most of us, if not all of us, are Gentiles. So this is part of the old unfolding plan. Now, if you don't memorize all Colossians like Tim does, uh, here's something you can memorize, this next slide. The mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery is Christ in you and in me, the hope of glory. The mystery is Christ inside of us, the presence of God inside. He, that's where he lives. And it's what, it, what's, it's what grounds our hope in the future glory of our resurrected bodies, living with Jesus face to face. And again, glory here, Paul is specifically talking about that time in our resurrected bodies in the new Jerusalem. But it's way too easy in a church setting just to say, Christ in you, yeah, and move on. What does it mean? What if you're not a mature Christian? What if you're a rock eater and you're brand new to the faith? And I mean that in a friendly way, obviously. <laughs> but what if you don't know him by the Bible? Christ, it just sounds weird. It sounds odd. Like, how did Christ get in there? Do they shrink him and stick him in? Where do they put him in? I mean, these are questions that people that don't know the Bible ask. So again, we, we interpret the unclear with the clear. So we're going to go to John 15, probably the best passage to talk about uh, Jesus in us, Christ in us. And, and you might be asking, I thought we were talking about maturity. How does that make me mature? Well, that we're going to find that in John 15. So if you have your Bibles, go to John 15. And John 15 is that famous section where uh, Jesus says, I am the true vine. The father is the, is the gardener, Jesus is the vine, and we're the branches. And I'm skipping down to verse four for time, but Jesus is talking here. Jesus says, remain in me as I also remain in you. That's the Christ in you, and that's the mystery. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. That sounds like maturity. Bearing fruit, faithful obedience, doing what God has us do because we're connected. The vine's connected to the branches. The branches are connected to the vine. And if we remain in him, we will be mature. Verse seven, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. That's prayer. Mature Christians pray. So pray for Tim. Come to St. Vincent's tomorrow at five. That's what mature Christians do. We pray for one another and pray for whatever else that the Holy Spirit tells you to pray about. How about 1510, skipping down to that. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's command and remain in his love. Mature Christians are loving. We need love, true Christian love, not false, fake love. How about 1511? I've told you this so that, you're, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. One of the ways you know you're not a rock eater anymore and you're actually maturing in Christ and on your way to being made complete is that you're joyful despite suffering. Because Jesus is in me, I not only get Jesus, I get Jesus' joy. So I should be more joyful next year than this year. In two years versus, you know, as you grow, we should grow in our maturity. Now, John wrote this gospel, and I think John was really attuned to this whole 
idea. There's another passage. You don't need to turn there. It's going to be on the slide. 1 John chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. John makes this really clear in this letter. He says this, but if anyone obeys his word, which is, by the way, a mature Christian will do that, right? Love for God is truly made complete in them. And there's the idea of maturity and complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Remember, he's in us and we're in him. This is how we know we're in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Super simple statement. Live like Jesus. Well, that, that's how we know we're maturing if we start living like Jesus. What did Jesus live, live like? It's not hard. He was a servant. He served. He sacrificed in many, many different ways. He was giving, not just of his funds, but of himself and every part of him. He was loving. He was joyous. All these characteristics of Jesus, we should live like that to the best of our possibility. So where, where does Paul go now with these with, with his letter, and it's a letter to the Colossians. He's talked about suffering. He's talked about mystery in the context of maturing. Where does he go now? I'm gonna read verses 28 and 29. Colossians 1, 28, 29. So coming to the end of the chapter. But because of this, what's the logical conclusion? Well, he says, he is the one we proclaim. So because Jesus loves us so much that he suffers with us, so much that he suffers with us, and that he's in us and he gives us his love. He gives us, because of that, we proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Verse 29, to this end I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. So these two verses are Paul's response, if you will, to the truths about suffering and, and the mystery. We admonish, we warn, we teach with wisdom so that we grow in maturity. This is going to be hard, though, Paul says, doesn't he? He says it's going to be a struggle. We need help from God. Now, verse 29 is a tough one because this whole passage is tough. And if your brain is full and tired, you can check out right now, take a little nap, and I'll tell you when to come back, okay? So we're all going to, whoever wants to stay with me, we're going to do verse 29. The rest of you that need a break, Take a break. We'll be back. Verse 29. Verse 29. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. In the church, in the Bible, because it's in the Bible, it's in the church, there's this giant tension between God's sovereignty on one hand and human responsibility on the other hand. I don't think I've ever said these words from up here, but I'm going to say them just to, for time's sake to help those who know of this. Calvinists, Arminians. If you don't know what those are, live in that. Just <laughs> never study it because <laughs> it's, it's, it's a rabbit trail that ends nowhere. But there's this big debate between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Which one trumps the other? Which one leads the other? And look at this verse slowly. Notice this. Um, there's both in here. To this end, I, Paul, strenuously contends. The New Living Translation says, I work hard. I struggle so hard. So that's human responsibility, human effort. But how does he do it? With all the energy of Christ, which so powerfully works in me. Well, ah, so, so which is it? And I think the answer is yes. It's both. 
it's both and. This verse and many other verses, that's why it's such a big debate, is because both are true in the Bible. Here's, in my opinion, which is not worth very much, the best way to understand this. God is sovereign. Fact. But what do you mean by that? He created the universe. He created us in his image. He is the sovereign one. But in his sovereignty, he chooses to partner with his people and gives us huge amount of responsibility and allows us to make choices about all sorts of things. So it's a both and, both are true, and we see both of them right here in this wonderful text. And Stephen, thank you again for having me preach it. So, um, all right, everybody that was camping out on a brain break, come back in. Verses two and three of chapter two, I'm gonna skip verse one. There's nothing really you need to, uh, to see in there. Verse two, Paul starts with my goal. And I like it when Paul says something like, my goal. Okay, we should know what his goal is. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. Does that sound like a mature Christian? It sure does. So that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God. So he circles back to the mystery again. The mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, when you see this verse, you could read it and just go, yeah, Christ, whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, duh, he's the smartest one in the room. And you just press on. But I want to pause here and, and listen to this. Douglas Moo says verse 3 is the Christological high point of the entire letter. And so what that means is we need to keep verse 3 in mind for the rest of the summer series. Every part of the rest of the summer series, we have to remember Jesus Christ is, what does it say? He, he's the one who has all the treasures, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Don't rush past that. Jesus is the source of all truth, all good wisdom, all good knowledge. The way we can apply that in our lives, I was in the business world for like 20 years, and it dawned on me one day that, in my opinion, and Tim Reed and I, we were talking about this uh, uh, before the, uh, this week, and he's in the business world as well. We, we're, we're both in agreement that all good business principles you could trace them back to the wisdom of God, the wisdom from above, as James says. All good principles have their, their grounding in the beautiful, wonderful, 100% truth and wisdom and knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you're a parent, man, there's so many, both my kids, I don't know how they can follow all the parenting advice that's out there right now. How do you tell the difference between the good parenting advice and the bad parenting advice? The good parenting advice is sourced in Jesus, the source of all truth and wisdom. So if you could track things back to that, that's a good thing. Okay, last two verses, verses four and five of chapter two, and we'll be done with the text, and I have a couple last thoughts for you. Paul kind of trips up, us up a little bit. He says, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you with fine-sounding arguments. So that's a warning. Paul's saying, there's a competing message here, and then he congratulates them in verse five for doing well. For though I'm absent from you in a body, I'm present you with the spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ are. Discipline, firm in faith, those are words that are attached to a mature 
Christian. But I want to talk about this, this warning in verse 4 for just a few minutes. It's a sober re- reality. There is a competing message in our culture. I would highly encourage you to watch the Bible Project's video on the book of Colossians. Watch it this week. Watch it every week during the summer series. And they say in this passage that in the Roman and Greek culture of the day, one of the big cultural things they fought was mystical polytheism. There was mystics and there was polytheism, which is multiple, multiple gods. And I'm here to tell you, we fight that same thing today. Mystical polytheism is here today. While I was preparing this, I found a class that you could take for just $295. I'm gonna read you the class description so that you don't take it, but here it is. Because it's a little scary. This class explores ways to connect to the mystical truth of our everyday lives. By the way, this is important. Join us as we embark upon a rich and expansive transformational experience connecting with the inner mystic that dwells within. Students will have the opportunity to do specific soul work to embrace the totality of themselves, releasing blockages and embodying the spiritual truth of their being. It's mystical polytheism. What's scary is if you replace inner mystic that dwells within with Holy Spirit, and you replace releasing blockages with confessing sin, it sounds pretty close to the Bible. Because that's what Satan does. The best deceptions, you take the truth, just tweak it a little bit, and push it. And that's what this class is doing. It's taking a truth and twisting it, pushing it out into the culture. Another competing mission today is postmodernism. It's, a, it's everywhere, because we live in a culture where everybody is a skeptic, everybody questions everything. You can't say anything about anything without having somebody say you're wrong. It's just the world we live in. Postmodernism, here's the definition of it. It denies the existence of any ultimate truth or principles. And we need to know that because that's the culture we live in. So when we, Christians, as we mature and we go out and say Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, we're gonna get pushback because the culture goes, "Mm mm-mm, there is no the truth. Truth is relevant. If it's true for you, yeah, you're good. Might not be true for me. That's not the way of Jesus. All wisdom, all knowledge is sourced in Jesus, the way, the truth, the life. So I asked at the very, very beginning, are we mature in Christ or are we maturing in Christ or do we desire to mature in Christ? And as the band comes forward and prepares us for a time of worship, uh, I just wanna ask a couple things and talk about just a couple practical things. We learn, we learn that we're, we're going to suffer, Jesus promises that, But hopefully there's some comfort that Jesus is suffering with us. We're in Christ, our hope of glory. I hope you daydream about the new heaven, the new earth. And if you have a hard time visioning that, go read Revelation 21 and 22, because that's that's it. We have to ask ourselves, are we remaining in Christ? Now, we're not going to be perfect, obviously. We're going to fail. We're going to slip up. But do we confess and get back? quickly. That's a sign of maturity. How quickly do we get back on track? And we have to fight hard. It's going to be hard work with the power of Christ in us 
to fight against these competing messages, the relative truth, the, the independence. You know, you don't need God. You, you can do anything you want to do. Be whatever you want to be. That's, that's part of it. Consumerism and all the other isms that are gods. That's the polytheist. Gods in our culture, consumerism. Even nationalism, which is a good thing, could be twisted to an untruth and pushed out. And of course, hedonism. Anything that pushes against Jesus is Lord of all is a competing pressure. And we have to fight against it. But first we have to notice it. So as we go to this time of worship, I wanna ask you one question and then ask you to dream of a vision. Um, the question is this, because I really think if there was gonna be one thing that you remember for today, Christ in us, our hope of glory. That's the mystery. And it, we just have to remember that Christ is in us. But if we're honest and we really want Christ to fill us up, the, the Holy Spirit to fill us up, if Christ is in us, does anything have to come out of us? For me, I was convicted of some stuff this week that has to come out. Because we're busy, we crowd out Jesus. That's probably one of the biggest problems in our culture. We don't, do, we, do we make time for God? We can't mature in Christ if we don't make time for Christ. To do all the, the basic things, read the Bible, pray, serve, love, give, all these things, they take time. So what has to come out of us for Christ to be fully in us? And, and then I want to give you something to just imagine because... You know, we, li we live in a pretty negative society, and I fall on this. You know, I, I've got more millennial jokes than I know what to do with, and now that I live with two millennials, I gotta shut up. <laughs> and I think my grandkids aren't Gen Z. I think they're Generation Alpha. I think we've gone full circle. But we, we live in a culture where everybody has something negative to say about every generation. What if, as a church, Jesus followers, and we found the good things to say about every generation. Listen to that podcast with Nick Hall. He has fantastic, and, so, and Ryan's on there, and Meredith's on there. They have great things to say about Gen Z, and you're not going to hear in most other places. What if we were in Christ and mature enough to find the love of Christ and find the joy of Christ in every generation? Thank you for listening to this episode of our Sunday Gathering podcast. To learn more about 26 West Church, please visit our website at 26westchurch.org.